This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. And today, we're bringing you a whole different angle. We bring you tech people. We bring you underwriting people. We bring you carrier marketing people. We bring you agency principals. Never before have we ever brought you a chief Coke bottle washing officer (laughs) as our guest on the podcast. And that's who we have today. Self-proclaimed Don Champagne from Michigan Insurance Group. What's up, Don? Hey, how you doing? I appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, you know, you and I still really don't know each other that well. We've gotten to know each other a little bit, but um, you know, you sort of fly under the radar a little bit being up in Michigan and me being down in Tampa. I didn't really, you know, hadn't really heard your name before. And I'm sure that that's mutual. You know, I'm, <laughs> I think I came out of the cover from under the cover of darkness, like two and a half years ago when COVID came up and people act like I had just been conceived or something when really I've been in the, in the industry for 15 years at that point, they just didn't know who I was because they didn't have time to be online playing around. We were all out right in business, but talk a little bit really quick before we, we get into, uh, you know, discussion, how you got in the insurance industry and sort of how how that got you to where you're at today at um at Michigan Michigan Insurance Group. And by the way, people, that was a joke. Don told us he was the chief Coke bottle washer uh, before we got on. He's the president of Michigan Michigan Insurance Group and certainly uh very respected in the insurance industry, both yeah, in, in the state of Michigan and nationally at this point. So just share a little bit about your background and how you got there. Sure. You know, it's it's funny when you hear people's story about how they got in the insurance business, um, almost always uh, it's to a fault. It says it was accidental. Yeah, um, never meant to. <laughs> and uh, so I got an opportunity to get involved in the commercial side of things right away and was working for a rather, a rather large insurance um, agency. But I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a great employee. I was young. Um, so we're talking 24 years ago. And so you get a little bit of success and you start to feel like you have it all figured out. And I quickly um, started trying to do things my way, which wasn't necessarily the right way and wasn't really compliant when it came to taking direction. And so we parted ways and I started an agency from scratch with a, maybe a, a small amount of uh, knowledge and no 
background to support growing an agency. So I made a lot of mistakes trying to figure it out as I went from, uh, you know, working from someone else to working for myself. And again, didn't change the fact that I wasn't a great employee. Um, just didn't have to answer <laughs> to as many people, just myself at that point. So it was uh, it was interesting, and I learned a, a lot through that process. Um, we celebrated 21 years in April. So our agency is now legally able to drink, and we celebrated <laughs> in uh, accordance of that. And we had a little party and uh, brought everyone in and um, had a uh, uh, some hors d'oeuvres and cocktails and, and celebrated go. the fact that we're here 21 years. And of, through those 21 years, I've you know had a lot of uh, growth and opportunities to recognize where I failed and, and where I could improve. And and so a lot of my efforts now, uh, including trying to continue to build the agency and grow it, um, we have a, a staff of 10 now. Um, but a lot of my efforts are to try and help other agents and other agencies maybe not have the same complications or avoid some of the pitfalls that I went through when trying to grow and figure this all out. So what were some of those things, man? It sounds like a little bit of a baptism by fire there with uh, <laughs> venturing out on your own thinking you... Dude, I'm going to get my uh, pen and pad out and start comparing notes at this point. <laughs> <laughs> this is well, very fresh um, on my mind as we sit here. So interesting. Um, so, you know... <sighs> When I first got licensed, I, you know, you, you get licensed in the state of Michigan, you know, you have 40 hours of, of classwork and then you take a test and, and you're able to sell insurance, which in many ways is quite scary if you think about it, but it is what it is. And um, so you start gaining a little bit of momentum, uh, maybe because you're good at the sales process, which I felt I was good at sales because I was comfortable with sales. Cold calling wasn't something that I was afraid of. And engaging with people was something that I was able to do, um, though I still probably talk more than I listen. And so I'm not really great from that sales standpoint, but uh, I was able to engage in a meaningful way and able to build some client base, which made me feel like I was good at what I was doing. Not recognizing that maybe I knew almost nothing about field underwriting or risk management, but I was selling off other people's deck pages and trying to build a book that way. And, and as we know now sitting here, th that's not the right way to do it, but I didn't know that at that point. And so... Um, I had to really realize that in order to be good, you had to be knowledgeable. You can't fake um, that uh, knowledge to uh, uh, any great length. You can start that way. Maybe when you get into uh, the beginning of things and initial conversations, you can fake a lot, but sooner or later, the depth goes away. And so I started spending a lot of time and in, in effort in educating myself about the industries I wanted to work with, about the industry I was working in. Um, that's when I started focusing on my designations. Um, so I have my CIC, my CRM, I did AAI, AIA, and pretty much every kind of class you can imagine um, to improve my knowledge. Because I, I recognize that I, I might not be the brightest person, but I can definitely be well-read and I can put in a lot more effort. I can outwork people that are smarter than me. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would say that I approached it about the exact same way, man. I mean, I came in, I was not in the industry, had never been in the industry and, you know, got my license, which was an obstacle in and of itself. I don't know what it's like up there. Most people, I, I'm always amazed when I travel to other states and hear what it takes to get your insurance license, because down here, it's brutal. Like we have, you have to sit through class for 200 hours. So for eight hours a day for five weeks, I was just sitting here getting peppered with insurance statistics and coverage form, you know, all of this stuff that we don't even use now. Right. And so even with Grayson going through getting his license, he would, you know, want me to help him study or ask me questions and stuff. And I'm like, dude, 
I'm not answering anything because statute six two nine point one five states anything, that <laughs> anything I tell you is going to be completely irrelevant. I don't want to. I don't want to mess you up. And I said the other thing is I don't want you to think I'm stupid because I'm not even going <laughs> to remember the answer to a lot of these questions because it's not something that applies day to day, you know. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I went and did that. And I worked in the evenings, I I would leave class and I would drive back home and I would change clothes and immediately jump into a a swimming pool and start, you know, I I plumbed, tiled and formed decks for swimming pools and new construction sites. So I was working till eight thirty, nine o'clock by the headlights of my truck at the time and getting back up the next morning, rinse, wash, repeat, and then you know, one day I finally finished the course, you know, five weeks later, got my license and then went back and, and wrote the the subcontractors, literally every subcontractor I made friends with on the new construction site, I went back and was able to take their, their business over. But, you know, I didn't stop there because that's, that's the problem, right? You get your license. What do you really know? You don't know anything, you know, how to memorize a bunch of crap, regurgitate it and answer a multiple choice test. And, you know, this is the old days. So I started with my CIC and I had to take them in person and I had to drive everywhere. I didn't have to, but I chose to drive everywhere where it was. And, you know, I started it in July and I finished it in December of the same year. And I felt like I finally had at least a foundational understanding of what it was I was doing. And then, you know, immediately after that started on the CRM, because I was like, well, if I'm going to get my continuing ad, I might as well just get another designation. And this one's the one that's going to make the most sense. And I mean, I've never, I've never done any other designations after that because I think the national Alliance does a really good job with the rubles and the other things that they have in place for you to get, you know, stimulating content that's going to make you better without having to go and constantly be searching for another designation or whatever else. And that's not me throwing shade at the institutes or anybody else out there. That's just personal preference for me. I don't need any more, in my opinion. I think I've done pretty well with with what what they've equipped me to use. I will say, I feel like of the two designations, the one that's made me better is the CRM because it's a different thought process. It's a different way to to learn a business and understand it and a- interact with the people that are there. Um, certainly, CIC is valuable as well, but I would I would argue that I probably use my CRM more on a daily basis than I use my CIC at this point, specifically to the middle market. Yeah, I would say the CIC is more foundational where CRM is more operational. It gets you into the nuts and bolts of how to actually do the job. So I would agree with that. Um, you know, it's funny when you say um, you don't want to talk too much about to Grayson. I really do feel like through the licensing process, you can do a lot to confuse people. I think licensing is very black and white, and we live in a world of gray. I mean, because it's not always a, you know, obviously there are some very direct answers that you can give. But there's a lot more discussion. I, I feel like a lot of these classes and then even, even licensing shouldn't be done without forms in front of you. They should hand you a policy and you should be able to dissect that policy and understand how that information is going to be used instead of seeing, can I memorize it? Because right now, if you ask me a question about a policy, I'm not going to try and wow you with my memory. I'm going to open up the policy, read the forms, yeah. the endorsements and say, this exactly. is how it will work in this uh, scenario. And so memorizing something doesn't necessarily make me smart. It makes gives me the ability to memorize, but could I can I apply it? And that's what yeah. I really want to know is can I apply it? And that's what I learned that I was failing on in the beginning is I didn't have the understanding of application. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's a good point. I mean, in the real world, it's not like we're gonna somebody's gonna ask us a question and we've got to 
sit there and like try to draw from our memory. Like we're going to pull up the policy, like you said, or we're going to, you know, look at whatever it is that we're talking about. So that part always uh, kind of like, I get that they want you for these licensing exams to memorize all the information and, and, you know, so that you can prove that you have an understanding of it and all that. But it, it just, it seems a little bit backwards to me. It, I, it, it does, you know, it, and again, each person learns a little differently and we approach these things differently. And I've met people that can just spit out forms and endorsements. And they know all the, the numbers and like, great, but I'm still not going to try and do that one, because I don't want to say something later that I have to backpedal on. Mm-hmm. And, and two, I know my strength is my ability to understand once I dig into it, not memorize it. But yeah, you're right. They're going to force you to memorize some things. They're trying to check your capacity for for understanding and knowledge. But I don't know that it's really put to to the real test because ultimately, if they made the test, the classes harder and the tests harder, but gave you a policy and said, all right, this is policy we're going to talk about. Let's dig in. You'd probably really start to understand who actually knows this business. And maybe you'd have less people passing, which might be problematic, but at least they'd be more educated because how many times you run into agents that really don't know what they're doing. And it's kind of shockingly scary how much they don't know. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Well, yeah. I mean, the industry's kind of lent itself to allowing that kind of behavior to exist, though, to a certain degree. I mean, you can know nothing at all about insurance, have a single digit handicapped and be able to pound plenty of beers at the 19th hole. And you're still going to be successful in the insurance industry because you're a good relationship person. And I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the things when, when people ask me, you know, what I think has helped me in my career. I think it's because I've, I've understood that you, you do have to have the foundational understanding of what it is you're actually selling. Like you have to, you have to know it, but I mean, and it needs to be more than that. I think that, I think we need to take our continuing education seriously in the spirit that it was designed to be taken, right? It's not there so that we can go online and skip to the test at the end and just answer it to get our credits. It's there to make us better and keep us up to date with everything that's going on. And a lot of agents- Can you look at um, your, like, if you wanted to see a competitor's licensing, continuing education, can you see that in the state of Florida? Um, I can probably get to it with a little bit of effort. I don't think that it would be too hard it's for me. right out there in the beginning, in the open for us in, in Michigan. Our hmm. requirements are not as stringent as yours. It's harder to get licensed in Florida. But when you're licensed, you can see it. And if you look, I would almost guarantee just randomly search names and start clicking on their education. And I think you'd be surprised at how many people get it the week before it's due and they're going to expire. Mm-hmm. So how much value did they actually get through those classes that they rushed through probably online while doing three other tasks instead of sitting in a classroom like like I did for my CIC and CRM? I went there because I wanted the interaction because I knew where I was struggling from a knowledge standpoint. And because I had my own agency and I started one early, I didn't have a person to turn to and ask questions. I had to figure it out myself. And because I was figuring it out myself, I had a lot of misunderstandings that I needed to go to correct throughout that process and gain more knowledge. Uh, the first 10 years were, were, were rough, to be honest. Uh, you know, and there's so many other times I probably should have just went and got a job with someone else because I had enough passion about the industry and wanted to know, but I didn't have the resources available or didn't know where those resources were. I, you know, you know, 21 years in the business and pretty, 
comfortable where I'm at. Had I known you and your program was available back then when I started, I would have jumped at that because it would it would have made me a superstar. Instead, I had to slowly grind, screw up, take two steps back, move forward, you know, try and hire people, not be able to do that well, try and manage people, not be able to do that well, learn, fail, learn, fail, and then go, okay, I think I have this figured out. And then have something else happen that throw, throw you off completely. So well, it's, and been, then a, the it's thing been an is, interesting oh, journey. Yeah, you're doing all of that with the financial pressure of having to produce because now you have people that are counting on you for that revenue to come in so that you Amen. can make payroll and everything else. And I mean, you know, it's easy to sit on a podcast, right? Like I do and talk about how you need to go get hired before you place the insurance. You shouldn't be dealing in bidding or, you know, price-based selling or whatever else. But every single one of us has done that at some point. Some continue. Some some of some people continue to do it. You know, I you know, I think it's it's much more difficult to lure me into that now. I'm not saying that I'm completely immune to it that I wouldn't get baited in some way, but I think I do a pretty good job of not working on things that aren't in my wheelhouse that aren't going to be something that I feel is reasonable for me to close that I can do a good job on and that can bring value to the client, right? But I can remember a time, even when Florida risks first risk first started, where I'm literally writing whatever I can find so that I know that I've got enough money to make my monthly payment to Zywave next month. Well, <laughs> you, you know, know so we we define our ideal client as we get better based yep. on parameters that we're comfortable working on. And those parameters will change over time. But in the beginning, our ideal client is they called or <laughs> they they're pay. open and said, yes, <laughs> they'll talk to me. That's it. Yeah. It was That's ideal. Right. You have they a heartbeat. No, I mean, I can even remember it. And I mean, and the thing is, when you sit and you look back at that and I look at, I'm writing all of it in here, it's easier. I think there's so, some things about the insurance industry that are easier in Florida because geography and premiums higher. So it, it, it cures a lot of ills, but it also magnifies them. So, you know, when I launched Florida Risk, one of the things I did was if I, I mean, I, if you called in and you were in ENS, I was going to write you a hundred percent. There's no question at all because I knew that cash was going to come in immediately. And I'm, you know, trying to get cash flow into the agency. So, Oh, you're a roofer that had three cancels for non-pay at your last agency. Yeah. Don't worry about it. I'll leverage Let's my, go. you know, <laughs> yeah, I'll leverage my 12, 15 year wholesale relationship. We'll make this work. And then what happens? The stupid thing cancels. And now I'm stuck with unearned commissions that I have to pay back. And, you know, you're already dealing with a, a startup and everything that goes with that. So it's just, I think that, that we get put in a position where it's really, really easy for us to get pressure. It's easy for us to say the right thing 20 years later, number one. Number two, it's easy for us to get pressured when we're newer in the industry to doing the things that other people who have been in the industry for 20 years say, don't do this because we can make it make sense in our minds. You know, I need money. This is going to pay me money. Let me go get it. We don't think about the fact that, oh man, you never collected the down payment on that that deal, and now you're on the hook for twenty five percent of the. It, it just those things don't go into your mind. So, you know, oh no, we can justify all our actions when we're in the in the in beginning because at the at the bottom line is we need to pay bills. The light bill comes every month, regardless of if you had a good month or not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and then when you start to scale and bring staff on, it's not just that you have to pay them; it's the employer portion of the taxes that come into effect. It's whether or not you're going to be able to offer benefits, which, you know, we've been relatively fortunate here. We're going to start a be start offering benefits January 1, but literally every single person I've brought in, 
with the exception of the the recent crew that started, you know, Kyle's wife, my wife, we both have awesome benefits packages through their employer. There's no reason for me to incur that cost. I've always told Kyle that when the day comes, I'll just make it up to them in 401k contribution or whatever else. But, you know, we're a startup, man. Even six years in, we're still a startup. We're not a legacy agency. And, you know, just because the revenue flows at a higher number than what others might doesn't mean you don't face the same problems. In fact, I'd argue that those problems can get bigger and be more severe, you know, because you make you make a couple of mistakes on key accounts that you bring in that that you're not expecting them to cancel or what or or leave you or whatever else and then you make hiring decisions around that you might have to go back and lay people off or whatever else and i don't think i don't think that the average person that comes into an agency or any business for that matter to be honest with you really thinks about what that side of the table looks like and the other part of that is I don't think that the people who sit on my side of the table do a good enough job of including people in those types of discussions so that they understand what it looks like. Like I wouldn't bring Kyle in, you know, two weeks after he starts and say, hey, by the way, you know, we're on a little shaky financial ground here. I just need you to <laughs> welcome you know, aboard. Yeah. Grab an oar. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But, you know, at the same time. You know, we we do have to have discussions about financial health and you know whether what vendors we think make sense to bring in and whatever. And we're we've been to a point so far in this agency where it's been unilateral decision making for the most part. I mean, we'll talk about things, but when it comes to actually putting putting the the pencil to the paper, I'm the one who pays for everything. So I usually make the decisions. I I've need to do a better job of including my team in that because I think that, you know, they can give some unbiased and valuable insight, you know, and I say unbiased, but maybe more objective, I should say, because if it's something they want, that's going to make their job easier. It's not hardly an unbiased conversation at that point, but you know, I don't, I just don't feel like agency principles by and large, I know it's a blanket statement and I'm not talking about everybody. We, we just try and control too much information and don't do a good enough job of, of, of doing that educational and sharing piece in-house. Right. There's more to learn about this industry than just coverage forms and, you know, endorsements and, and exclusions and all of that. It's, you know, what does it take to actually run an agency? And I think there's a subset of agencies out there where you've got people that are getting ready to want to sunset their career and they're screwed. You know, they're, they're not in, they're not running away that it's attractive to venture capital as funds start to dry up. And they've done nothing at all to succession plan or to even to to prepare that next generation to come in and take the agency and carry right. it forward. It's a really tough position to be in. And, you know, I'm more of the other way. I probably share more than I should sometimes. But, um, no, you know, you know, but David, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I, you know, so I, I'll do consulting because um, I have a, the insurance business and I have a consulting business. And one of the things I try and encourage people then consulting was driven out of businesses that knew their trade, but didn't know how to run a business. And I feel like that's common, even in the insurance world. We know our trade, like I started. I, I was I felt I was good at, at sales, so I thought I could run an insurance agency, which the two have nothing to do with each other. No, it's they like don't. apples and hammers. They have nothing to do with each but other. But if you think about it, that's what happens, right? That's the oh, natural yeah. progression. Oh, you're a great, you know, I'm, I'm a million dollar producer, so I'm just going to you know, if I can do this for you, I can go do this for myself. I'm going to take my book and do it. And then wham, (laughs) you know, they get hit with a mallet right in the face. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've always encouraged is to share 
some of the obstacles. I mean, and sometimes it, it might the obstacles might be trying to get businesses to understand the you know the the operational costs, their their fixed costs, and then sharing those fixed costs with their employees so they have an understanding of what it takes just to open the doors. And so I don't think it's wrong. We've taken an approach um, in sharing. It's a little bit different. Like if we want to bring in a new technology or a process change, I bring it to the team. And then our first focus and the team has to tell me every reason why it won't work. We don't even start with this is a good idea. We start with why it won't work. Because I want to tackle those kind of complications in the beginning. Because if we have a critical one, we've wasted a lot of time and energy in the front end of trying to start something. And then we have one critical objection that's like, yeah, you're right. We can't do this. But if we start there, they start problem solving right away. And then there's buy-in right from the beginning because they they figure out the objections and then they start to defend the product or procedure or process, whatever we're trying to change. And then they will implement differently. Whereas if I walk in and say, here's what we're going to do, it's okay, that's fine. But will they completely do it? I mean, yes, if I'm standing there watching them, but ultimately, you know, we operate as a team environment. And so I need them to be doing the same things I'm doing. Consistency is going to be key in our success. And if I'm the only one being consistent or they're the only ones being consistent, then we're going to have inconsistency that we don't even see until there's a problem. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about it that way before. But if you open up by shooting holes, it makes it a whole lot easier to get buy-in after you've plugged them all, right? Yes, sir. Or yeah. or making the decision to walk away from the idea because Absolutely. You found Sometimes out it's right. just not yeah. going to work. Yeah. Now, is that a conversation if, you're having with everybody, or is that just with like you know maybe? management level or, or what's that look like? Well, you got to remember, like, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're a smaller agency. So, I mean, we can, we can have some of those conversations at management level, but that's, that's going to exclude, and it's going to include like three people and then it takes out seven of the others. Um, I try and be as inclusive as possible or relevant as possible. So if it's obviously on the commercial side of things, then I'm not going to bring personal lines into it and have that conversation mm-hmm. unless there's some cross utilization. Cause I don't want to bore them with the information or take them away from their their jobs, or take them away from generating revenue. Um, but there are times when it's just going to be like, hey, this is a an, a procedural process that might change how we do business completely. And even though it only affects one department more, more than the other, I'd rather have buy in from everyone and have a conversation with everyone, so that one that there's there's that cross table uh, communication, and they're going to see things differently than I see um, because they're doing their, the job differently. I don't do every one of their tasks. Hopefully, I can, but realistically, I don't do it on a day-to-day basis. And I couldn't even tell you the difference between an HO3 and HO4. So I don't even want to jump into personal lines. <laughs> but we have people who are doing those kind of things. And I want to make sure that they're involved in these conversations because I might miss something that they're going to point out. And, and that's a you know that's an ego check, which isn't always easy as a business owner, but it's something that needs to be done. Yeah. I have no problem admitting what I don't know, honestly. I mean, even inside Killing Commercial, man, I had a guy today that's in the community. He has a very specific risk that he needed some advice on. And he sent me over the profile of what everything was. And I looked at it and I'm like, I'm absolutely worthless to you on this, man, to be honest with you. It's not a class of business that I write. I don't know the ins and outs of the coverage. I don't know the markets. I don't know the risk management side of it. I can look at it as a generalist and tell you some things I would think of, but rather than me doing that, let me look at my network. Here's three people that I know for a fact know this really, really well. And honestly, if this hit my desk, one of two things would happen. I would either call them for their advice and their counsel and, and have them help me get through it, or I would simply refer it to them because that's what they do. 
And I think that's the other thing, man. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in staying in your lane. You know, I don't think that you need to have just one, one ideal prospect because I think you can be really, really dangerous. Uh, you it can get really dangerous if you have all your eggs in that basket. But if you're somebody like a Bob Klinger who literally has 15 or 20 niches that have all come out of the fact that he deals with Asian owned businesses broadly, you know, think about all of the stuff that comes from that clothing stores, mm. restaurants, dry cleaners, nail salons, all of that. Now this, here's a guy who has a niche, which is those types of businesses, but then drills down to very specific, you know, classes inside of that segment. And that works. I think the agencies by and large should be generalists because that's how you scale. You need to be able to cater to as many people as you can, but inside that generalist agency, the people they get need to be experts at those things that they do and just focus on being the best of that. If you literally had three to five ideal prospects and in terms of profile, and all you did was you stayed into those three, three to five, no matter what, You'll never have you. You won't have nearly the headaches that you'll have if you try and be all things to all people. You just can't do it, and you're protecting your agency from an E and O exposure in addition because you can go deep. What you just said when we started out was you needed to learn the industries you were working, you know, with and the industry you were working in. And I don't think a lot of times people put enough emphasis on learning the industries they're working with. You know, I've taken it to a completely different extreme in the past. I've actually worked shifts for some of the people that were my prospects and my clients, because that was the best way for me to see an unfiltered view of what it is they're doing. But I tell the story all the time. When I got my license and came back out, and started calling on subs at these different um, different places, one of the companies that I had a good relationship with poured the, the, the pool decks. They, we would do all the forming and, and the, uh, the steel work and the bonding and everything to make sure that, that it passed inspection. But then they would come and actually put the, the cool decking down and the coating and the deco drain and all of that. And, you know, it was an attractive account. They had 35 or 40 pickup trucks. This is long before, this is not long before, but back before, the the housing market crashed. So we were still going great guns in oh oh this is probably like oh oh four oh five time frame. Okay, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, I went back out and called on him. She's like, look, he would love to talk to you about in- insurance, but he's actually running a crew today. You know, we are so shorthanded on help. I'm like, well, you know, I'm not too proud to put on some jeans and a t shirt and some work boots and go help you guys with your your finishing project. I I know how to install deco drain and I know how to do this other stuff. Let me come be a day laborer for you or whatever. I'll work with you for a couple of days. And I did. And I I mean, I got the account, not because I necessarily went and worked for them for a couple of days. I'm sure that, that didn't probably hurt. didn't hurt. I'm sure it didn't hurt my chances, <laughs> any, right? But it, it allowed me to get in and see the types of things that were going on on these job sites. But what it did and where the, the fact that I was willing to do that helped me the most was that those people realized that I was willing to invest in a relationship to help them no matter what the cost was to me. So 
I was willing to put the sweat equity in. So when I had to have the conversation with this business that they had a fleet of 35 or 40 vehicles and their auto limit was a $10,000 combined single limit on a fleet that size, and I needed them to be at at least a million plus we needed an umbrella, they didn't question me at that point. They didn't question why, you know, why I was giving them that information. I was one of them at that point. So to go in and have that conversation and explain, listen, you know, I don't know how you guys haven't been put out of business yet. You have a $10,000 combined single limit on your auto. You literally could be sued for everything above and beyond what the face amount on that policy or the, the limit on that policy is. You know, I understand it's going to hurt and it's going to cost you a little bit more, but it's not going to cost you likely nearly as much as what you expect it to um, relative because you're still paying a lot of money just to have a $10,000 CSL. And we did. We wrote it. We wrote it with a million. We even put a $5 million umbrella on top of it. Yeah, it cost them more money, but, you know, that's the, the other piece of it is, and I think that um, this is probably going to become a common theme for me, especially in the hard market with so many people shopping. I was willing to be patient, man. I wasn't going out trying to close the deal on an AOR on the first meeting. I knew that it was going right, to take right. me a little bit of time. You know, I knew I was going to have to spend some time, you know, getting to know the ownership of the company who I didn't know as well. And, and just knowing that I had to be ready to take my shot when the time came, but that shot doesn't need to be like right out of the box. And right now there's so many people, let me get you a quote. Let me quote your business this year. Let me do this. Let me do that. It's like, come on, man. You're like, oh, they're, just, they're just trying to churn hundred percent. And, and there's no value whatsoever. If anything, it's detrimental to the prospect because they're destroying their reputation in the in underwriting marketplace, right? In, in the underwriting community. And, you know, they're, they're keeping, they're keeping them, those people from focusing on, you know, really what's important. And that is what what's driving premium, you know, premium is one thing, but it's just a symptom of a bigger problem. You know, when you're, when your premium comes back and it's, you're, oh, my workers comp went up to 150,000 from a hundred thousand this year. I don't understand why. Well, it's, be, it's not because somebody just decided to change your rates. It's because your mod went from a one to a 1.5. That's right. why, right. why did your mod go up? What can we look at here? What can we do in, in this area or any number of other things, you know, it, it, even with property, I think we're at a point now where these clients, especially in Florida, that like they have to have their property stuff hundred percent on point. Like you better, all your oh, yeah. updates better be done. Your, your, you know, all of your extinguishers and everything. If you have, if you're not a restaurant operation, none of this crap about not having a vent hood uh, cleaning contract or grease trap or making sure that you're having like all of this stuff. I've definitely noticed like additional questions being asked that were not asked in the past, like over the past couple of years, stuff that you're talking about, like the vent hood stuff and like hundred you know, percent dates and not times, but like, you know, when the last cleaning was and, and who installed it, who, who well, maintains it and all that stuff. You know, the thing is, it's interesting because it ties right nicely into one of the classes that I actually teach in the industry, which is, you know, for commercial agents, how to build niches. And though I, I, I don't um, eliminate personal lines because you can build niches and personal lines as well, but that's my area of focus. But one of the things it talks about is, is um, you know, building that prof those professional relationships. And part of it is understanding the industry that you're in. And, you know, I always say professional vocabulary is something that you cannot hide. So if you're going to work in industry, you need to know the language that they speak. But when we go into this, as we go into this hard market, it's really going to set yourself apart when you actually can speak and understand 
the industry, speak the language and understand the industry that you're working in. And, you know, as you're saying, Kyle, like, you know, they're asking for stuff about in, in the in the kitchen area and they're asking about the Ansel system and they're asking about, you know, are, are they are having the, um, uh, the, the fire suppression so, system inspected mm-hmm. annually? Are they doing their hood system uh, semi-annually? Are they, you know, are they cleaning them weekly? And these questions, and you know this like right from the top and you can point these things out, you're, you're gaining credibility and the next agent comes in, they may be able to come in and walk in with a little bit cheaper price, but they're not gonna make them feel comfortable if they don't ask all these questions that you already established yeah. are normal questions to ask in the industry. You're mm-hmm. setting yourself apart and setting an expectation with your insured, which I think is critical to be successful when the market changes like this. For sure. There's been several appointments that I've been on just recently here where people are like, nobody's ever asked me that before. I'm like, oh, that's kind of a problem. Like, that's, I mean, that's funny to me. Yeah. It, like it happens frequently. And I mean, well, and my answer to that in the beginning, because I used to ask a lot more questions, mm-hmm. is what I found my response was, how can I properly insure you if I don't properly understand your business? Right. So I ask a lot, a lot of questions and I'm going to get a lot of information so that I can go to uh, work for you with the carriers to make sure that we have proper coverage with proper pricing and, you know, putting together an insurance program that meets your specific needs because it's, it's not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that goes into some of what I talk about too. You know, I've got the questions that I ask everybody. And one of those questions is, are you able to give me access to your employees so that I can have conversations with them? I want to interview your executive team. I want to interview your mid-level management and I want to interview frontline people. That's the best way for me to get an understanding of what goes on in your operation. And I think that that's paramount because we really do that, by the way. It's not like I'm asking that as just some sort of a sales tactic right? and then I'm not going to go do it. I mean, before we bring you into the agency, we do a baseline risk assessment of every middle market account that we write so that we understand what we're bringing in too. Because again, for those of you that are producers that think you can do it better than your agency principal, listen to a good producer who's now an agency principal tell you it's a whole different world when you have to write profitable business versus just writing business. I can tell you about the times that I went out and wrote accounts and I thought I was doing the agency a great service. And at that time I actually was because, you know, I've never worked for anything other than a startup agency. If you can believe that or not, I've only worked at scratch agencies. Um, Now the first one I was, that's probably worth over $500 million. Now it's publicly traded on NASDAQ. So it's a little different story, but then the one in between them and Florida risk was one I started from scratch with two partners and then, started Florida risk eight years after that. So I get it, but you know, it's a big difference when you have to go out and you, you discover what contingency commissions and profit sharing bonus and growth incentive and what all that stuff looks like. It's not the same as what is just going out, writing an account, collecting great commission. You know, even if you're top producer in the firm, because if you're writing crap, it's going to come back and bite them on the back end. And that's that's one of the biggest differences to me from moving from producer to producing agency principal. I'm a lot more focused on quality of account, you know, than I was then. Right. Not that not that Kyle's not, you know, because we're going to talk about we're going to talk about things and he knows what my expectations are. My producers all know what the expectations are. It's just it's a different thought process, man. And I'm sure you experienced the same thing. You know, we, we, we have, and, and, and we, we try and take it as a team approach to have conversations about, you know, good, good risk versus bad risk, ideal clients versus non-ideal clients. Um, 
because we want to make sure we have it in the forefront and each agent will have a different perspective to some degree. So we, we want to have some flexibility. I feel like we need to build guide rails so they can, you know, weave back and forth left to right, but recognize that don't go past those guardrails or guide rails so they understand where they should be stopping when trying to build um, that client base. You know, our commercial side, so we never jumped into middle market. You know, we occasionally dabble in it. Our focus was when I first got started, I always say the David and Goliath story is a, is a great story, but, um, you know, quite often Goliath wins and I didn't want to fight that battle. So I didn't want to fight against the big agencies when I lacked the ability or knowledge, but I wanted to go after stuff that was more complex that the captives or the small uh, residential you know, or personalized agencies wouldn't be going after. So I, I built somewhere right in between a sweet spot. And so I went after complex risks that um, had you know, some premium, but, um, you know, we're smaller in nature and they didn't have the complexity of some of the risks that you work with on a daily basis. But what that allowed me to do is, as you said, fly under the radar for a long time. Like there's agencies that, you know, I worked in the same area and they didn't even know who I was, which was, which was fine, but we were doing solid work and putting together solid proposals. And when they started to find out who I was, I started getting job offers. And <laughs> quite often they were, you know, interesting to me because I was still struggling, you know, trying to figure it out. I, I might've been getting better at being an agent, but I still wasn't really good at being a, a business owner. And that, you know, took additional time. But what it what it taught me is um, there are clients that you need to say no to and walk away from it. And that was so devastating in the beginning because it was just, you know, premium going out the window, which meant commission going out the window. And I probably worked really, really hard for that, felt I earned it. Um, but, you know, I, I've now come to realize that one, you got to continue to earn it. It's not just, you know, residual income is a great part of our industry but it's not free. You know, there's effort that goes into keeping that residual income. And sometimes it's okay to let it go out the door. It's easier said now than it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's interesting. My buddy, Mick Hunt always talks about how the renewal process starts at onboarding, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's really the case, man, because we, we do such a great job of setting expectations. And I say that somewhat tongue in cheek when we're at the, at the point of sale as producers and then what happens, right? You know, I think a lot of times it's whatever we need to do to get the job done is what we're going to tell you. And now we have to figure out how to make it work. Once we bring somebody on the books, you know, certainly not the case at this point in my career, but certainly have seen it before. And if you don't have that built in, like if you don't have your onboarding process dialed in, that's the, the honeymoon's over when coverage is bound, man. When they come into the agency, it's over. Now you got to go back and do everything that you said you were going to do. So I don't want to camp out too much on, on the producers and the agency side though, because there was a big part of your life where you have been involved with the big eye. And I'm sure that's opened yeah. some doors for you and given you some opportunities in your career, but and one of those is to give back, right? Like that's probably yeah. one of the more thankless jobs I have to believe. Um, I'm sure there's not a long list of people that are vying to get elected to to be the the president of the Michigan Big Eye. Maybe there is. I don't know. I, I can tell you I wouldn't want the job. I can't imagine. I know what it's like. Um, listen to agents complain in online forums. I couldn't imagine if I had to actually listen to them without scrolling past it. So, you yeah. know, talk so, a little um, bit about your involvement because you're the, you're the sure. immediate past president of the, the big eye of Michigan, right? Correct. So um, one, uh, so for, we have a, a rather engaged and robust um, state association. So we're fortunate with the association that we have. I mean, if you come to our convention, it's going to be five, 600 strong. 
Uh, so oh. we're not a we're we're not a small operation when when we put those together, and that's not even a fair representation of you know how many people could be coming to the the, the convention. That's who's chosen to. We're trying to continuously up our uh, offerings to ensure that there's more interaction at the convention level. Uh, I, I actually took over as convention chair, uh, which is a new position, simply because I wanted to energize it a little differently. I think we did a really good job of providing check the box value, but it wasn't as exciting. And I think that insurance isn't an exciting thing, but we can add excitement to it to in, in, in get better engagement. So, um, but I originally got involved with the big eye because of legislative things that I was interested in. So I my first involvement was at the legislative committee and you know, with being involved with the PACs. And then I found myself um vying for a board position and was elected to the board. And that, you know, that's basically to get elected to the board, it's it's your contemporaries around you. And then when you get on the board, I found myself vying for um, a leadership position. So now your board members have to appoint or elect you to that position. And then you work your way through this, uh, the chairs. So you start as your secretary, treasurer, vice president, and then president. And then we have the immediate past president so that we don't lose any of those um, legacy information that might, might be beneficial to the current mm, seat and president. Okay. And then after that, then you're just passed over because you're done. And you can you so can that's an actual position, the immediate past president. Immediate past okay. president is an actual position. You're still a voting member of that board. You're um, still it. engaged. You just your your duties are are much less. They're um, some are ceremonial, um, but um, you know because of my um, <laughs> involvement with the legislative portion of things, I still now I'm on the legislative committee again and actually chairing that. And we're heavily involved with any kind of interaction with um, the Department of Insurance and Financial Services to ensure that our voice is being heard when legislation is coming out that impacts our industry. So, um, you know, yes, I mean, David, you're right. There's a lot of effort that comes into that. And so it is it can be quite taxing. But I will tell you that I firmly believe that I've gotten far more out of my involvement than I've ever given. And this is coming from someone who's highly engaged and highly active. But the relationships as you've built in in, in your efforts you know, throughout the nation, the relationships you get in this industry have so much immense value, both personally and professionally, that you can't even put them on the same scale when you recognize how much effort you had to put in to get to those relationships. And they've been built over many years. And having the ability to call, um, you know, people throughout the state, throughout the nation, and just say, hey, I have a question, I have a scenario that I want to run past you, um, is, is priceless. So, you know, I think that they've made me, you know, a better person, They've made me a better agent, which made me, you know, made a, made us a better agency. And you can't put value on those things as well. So yes, there are there's times when it can be quite taxing and it can really mess with your schedule. As you're, you know, we, I just got back from D.C. doing our um, our stint through uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Um, you know, trying to deal with deal with our Congress people and just talk to them about um, issues that are facing the industry as a whole state, nationwide. Um, and then we're coming up to do our 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 local, um, you know, our statewide. Uh, legislative uh, pack day, and they do take a lot of time. There's travel time. There's um, you know prep time. There's time on uh, while you're in the field doing these kind of things. But it gives you a stronger understanding of how big our industry really is and how important our industry is. Not just for us that are in the industry, but to everyone that's involved. Like nothing happens without our engagement at some level. You don't buy anything. You don't sell anything. You don't make anything without some part of insurance touching it. And that's critical to the infrastructure of the, the economy in the United States. And so once you start to get a feel for it, you, you're humbled by your ability to be involved and have an impact instead of feeling like you're taxed by it. So um, that's been my experience. And I would encourage 
anyone who's not involved to get involved at some level because the educational opportunities that are provided, the networking opportunities, the peer-to-peer interaction that are critical to the success of agencies, especially small ones that don't have a robust team to be able to talk to on a regular basis. Therefore, the offering, if you just participate and get, in, get involved, get in, engaged at the, uh, the level, and then if you want to do more, there's committee work, there's you know board opportunities. I mean, they're always going to be looking for people who want to have some involvement and make an impact on the industry. And then it's really up to you how much effort you want to put in. But it's been a blessing to me. Um, you know, there are times when I'm like, I kind of shake my head, like I should be selling, but here I am doing this. But I do recognize that I've been fortunate to be in an industry that's allowed me some, you know, some um, decent success. And I'd like to pay that forward to as many people as possible. Absolutely. What do you, what would you say to an agent who doesn't think they should be involved or doesn't understand what the big eye does for them? Well, and I don't know, mean I, that. Let me be very clear. I don't mean that to be a loaded question by any stretch. No, I know I, I get it, but but there is a lot of people that they, that are they maybe have a, a a mixed feeling. Maybe they don't see the value uh, of the continued cost of paying membership. Maybe they don't see the value of participating in PAC. And I I recognize that. I mean, when we talk about PAC dollars and dollars that go into the industry, there are people who will say, "Well, why should I have to pay politicians to do their jobs?" And I'm like, well, you're not really paying politicians to do your job. You're paying for the opportunity to educate them about the industry because they don't understand. They're neophytes when it comes to much of the work that we do. And if you don't spend time and energy, which sometimes mean resources, to educate them, they're going to make decisions that are contrary to your best interest and you're powerless to, 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 to um, do anything about it. And I think part of being involved is is a necessity because if you're not involved quite often, you're going to be seen as a parasite in your industry. You're benefiting from the efforts of a lot of these associations, both state and nationwide, and you're not participating. So the fact that your your, your taxes are are being looked at differently because of the efforts of the big eye, because uh, because of you know things that are happening both at a state and national level, because of the the disallowing other people to enter into our industry without any meeting any certain qualifications, those things are being curbed at the both national and state level. And so we want to make sure that we have one large numbers of participation so that they understand that it's a huge block of voters and influential voters because insurance agents tend to be leaders in their communities. They're the ones that are out there fighting for their communities, working at the, you know, uh, the local schools and, you know, the, the nonprofits and serving on the boards and not to say other businesses aren't, but insurance people are. And so they know that they have a, a, a center of influence that's quite large. And to recognize that we're voting a, a certain way and, and advocating a certain way is important when they look at those numbers. So I encourage people to participate, be involved in state association because it gets you access to information that's important. And if you have the ability to um, engage it at a from a political level, even if it's just you know fifty hundred dollars a year, I think it's a big investment because it does create a, the ability for the state associations to engage with as many political people as possible to keep them educated about the industry that we work in. Yeah, I, I think I will probably never be asked to be the president of any big eye anywhere. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that I have, I know how to play the political game, man. I just don't have the patience to play the political game most of the time. And if somebody pushed back on me, my first response would be, how many letters have you personally written to your congressman or senator to take care of the issue since you don't feel a need to contribute? Like that would be my my first response. And <laughs> if they if they haven't done anything, then what's the excuse? Like to me, in, in the thought process being this is something that has to happen. Like this isn't something new to this decade or even 
you know, this this generation. That that's how the political game works. You have to get in front of these people. That's a process. Then there's a process when you are in front of them. Then there's a process for following up after the fact. And if you're not doing those things, don't tell me you're not benefiting at the expense of others in the industry. I'm tired of footing the bill for half of you people. You know, I'm involved in the big eye financially. I make the contributions that I need to make. And I I know that I benefit from it. I don't have a problem making those payments every year for that reason. If I'm not willing to get out there and do the work myself, it's no different than anything else in the agency. I have to be willing to either delegate or outsource it. And in this case, for me, it makes more sense for me to pay people who are probably better at what that job requires than what I am. And it preserves my time to focus on what is important to me. Not that that's not, but building my agency and making sure it stays on the rails. So if I can't take time away from that to go do anything else, then I need to figure out a way to get the other important things done without me having to be directly involved. And I don't, look, I'm not saying that people should blindly write checks and not be involved. I think you know, that you should be involved to the level that you're capable and comfortable of being involved, you know, but for some of us, it just doesn't make sense, right? It makes more sense to be a member. You know, if you need me, I'm here, but here's my contribution to the annual, the pack, you know, deal. And we're done. You know, but you know, you're engaged and whether you're involved doesn't necessarily matter because we all have a certain amount of time constraints and it's not like you don't have a lot of stuff going on but you're still engaged. You're still participating from a membership standpoint. You're contributing when necessary, maybe going to a fundraiser or donating to PAC or whatever it is that you choose to do, you're still engaged. And you can further engage by getting involved if you choose to, but I don't know that that's necessarily what everyone needs to do. I mean, there, we, we can't have you know every single agent showing up to every single thing that's going on. I don't know that their capacity is there, but making sure that you're, you're not just basically, um, I don't know, just... You know, out in the dark, you know, because you're not participating. So you're not getting the monthly quarterly newsletters. You're not seeing the, the the challenges that are being faced. You're not getting information about the legislative actions that's going to be contrary to the benefits of the industry and recognize what the efforts of the associations are to, you know, counteract those things. Then you're just basically um, missing a huge part of the industry that's going to benefit you. And that lack of knowledge sometimes can be uh, uh, detrimental to your overall success. So just participating at the membership level is, to me, critical. I, I'd love the people to do a little bit more than that, but I'm not, I'm not going to push. I, I, I just think that you have to have some kind of engagement to ensure that you're supporting an association that actually works tirelessly on your behalf. I think that it goes back to things that we've talked about here a, a lot, um, where people are just very comfortable in the industry, just showing up, staying in their own little bubble, not really progressing, you know, not incorporating some of the changes that have been coming over the last few years in terms of technology and just different ways of thinking. And it, it kind of seems like uh, a, a larger scale of that, of the stuff that we've been talking about before. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, you know, and the peer to peer interactions that come with that, and you can get peer to peer interactions other ways. I understand that, but the peer to peer interactions after getting involved at the state association are fantastic because, you know, I have peer to peer interactions, um, you know, nationwide, obviously, you know, I got met David and, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to call or communicate with him on things if I want to ask him questions. Um, but his, his, your guys' market is different than ours. 
So yes, I can talk, you know, from a higher level of, hey, I'm, I'm curious about this, or what would you do with this? And we can have some feedback, but it's also important to have that conversation maybe with someone on the other side of the state, maybe not direct competition, because you might be uncomfortable having the conversation, but you, someone you're comfortable enough with or have enough knowledge with that you can talk to about how they're doing things that are happening directly in the industry in this area that you're you're working on. And, and I think that's important. So you gain that. And there are a lot of people who just like, they don't care. They sit in their bubble. And then every once in a while, they pop up their head and like, hey, you guys still using typewriters? And you're like, yeah, no, not, <laughs> not in a while. We got rid of those like 20 years ago, but you know, welcome to the game. Yep. Absolutely. Well, listen, in respect of time, I, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Any parting words we need to make sure that we get out to everybody? Uh, no, you know, I think the best thing I'd love to share as, as from an exit standpoint is to get, get involved, get involved in the industry. We all have something to share, um, spend time learning from the people around you. And then if you gain some information that's valuable, feel free to share it. I think sometimes we're, we're fearful of sharing information because we don't want to hear, well, everybody already knew that. But shockingly enough, there's we can learn from everyone. And you know, I give you guys a lot of credit for doing things like this because it it spreads the word. It, it, it shows that there's a lot of energy and efforts going on in our industry that might fly under the radar if, if you weren't putting out the effort of uh, highlighting them and having these conversations. So I give you a lot of credit for doing it because I know it, it's not an easy thing, one, to allocate the time, one, to put the technology together. And then let's face it, to keep it interesting because insurance isn't always an exciting topic to to talk about. Now, I'm an insurance nerd, so I like talking about it, but not everybody <laughs> else does. So, um, so I would say like, if you can't, if you're not engaged at the, you know, the um, state level, you know, with your association, get involved with some of the other um, large associations, you know, joining these uh, uh, podcasts and listening in, it's going to just make you better agents, which will make you make a better agency, which then makes a better industry, which is good for us all. There you go. Absolutely. Well, I don't know a better way to wrap it up. People get involved, man. Seriously. Like I said, I'm sick and tired of having to subsidize half of you out there. I know you guys are making good money because you're listening to the damn podcast for crying out loud. We're showing you how to make money. Just just give a little bit back to the industry. We're not charging you to listen to this. I'll leave it at that. Everybody have a great week. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. See ya. See ya. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.